0: Okay, domain query: Cynasian Asian War. Uh, this is a response to a question uh, posed by <clears throat> reader and uh, longtime reader and friend of the blog, uh, John C, uh, or as he's been known before, John C. Nine One One, same guy. Uh, I did a podcast. Uh, I, d- I appeared on his podcast. I should say, uh, oh, I don't know, last uh, October, I think, uh, thereabouts. And he asks, um, quote, Hey. Didact, in your opinion, what would a war between India and China be like? Also, could a small war between India and China have any benefits? It is a weird question to ask, but uh, in regards to the surplus of uh, men to women in both countries, such a thing might help the gender divide. Uh, It might also wake up the average Indian to threats. Uh, I was thinking about uh, World War II and the aftermath with the Russians, or for the Russians. Uh, Yes, the country was trashed, and a lot of family lost loved ones. Uh, Millions died. Uh, The gender balance changed afterwards, and that has affected uh, the men and the women. And the war has psychologically affected them. This is one reason, uh, as well as years of living under a communist system, why Russians did not sign up for the immigration crisis like Western Europeans did. You have commented in the past on Indian men and women, Indian military ranks, and the caste system, uh, explaining in part why India is what it is, which, I'm inserting parenthetically here, it's a shithole country. Uh, End of insertion. A war might force them to rework or change, uh, though this might require such a disaster to force the change. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, Uh, there's a lot to get through here, and uh, this will probably take some time, but I will try to answer these questions, there are many of them, uh, as speedily and as thoroughly as I can. First, a little bit of background. Um, India and China were not always enemies, and uh, in fact, India and China um, had a sort of uh, rapprochement, uh, if you will, or in fact, uh, much more than that. They had a, uh, the, the Nehru government back in the day, India's first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, tried very hard to, um, to incorporate India and China into the non aligned movement at the time. With this whole, uh, I think it was called the, the Indichin Bhai Bhai campaign. Uh, what that means is Indians and Chinese are brothers, uh, you know, the, the brotherhood between the two nations. Uh, it didn't work for very long because, of course, China was led by a totalitarian nutcase um, and megalomaniac by the name of Mao Zedong, And uh, and <clears throat> India was led by a not necessarily very much better socialist by the name of Nehru, and India has been a socialist country ever since, but it hasn't uh, uh, fortunately adopted quite as much of the... Uh, stupidity of communism, as China did. That being said, India has been a socialist country for much of its uh, post-partition uh, history, with, of course, the usual uh, extremely negative side effects of that uh, of that stupidity. Um, <clears throat> now, India and China have fought a war before. Uh, India and China fought a war in, oh, let's see, in Indo-Chinese War uh, or the Sino-Indian War. Uh, the Sino-Indian War uh, basically uh, was an escalation of a border conflict, and uh, it occurred in 1962. Now, it's not entirely clear who won that war because, honestly, nobody really, nobody really won it. But uh, essentially, the war started um, in an area known as uh, of the Aksai-Chin and uh, Arunachal Pradesh border regions. And uh, I'll link to the uh, Infogalactic article on it. You can go look it up there. Uh, <clears throat> but basically, um, there wasn't really a whole lot of progress made by either side, although Calcutta was, I think, under threat. Uh, at, at one point, um, where the, the Chinese were within, you know, I think within like 60 kilometers or hundred kilometers of Calcutta. I, I mean, I forget the details. I don't know much about this war. Uh, my mother and father definitely would, would know about it because, well, they were there. Um, or I should say my father was there. Uh, his, his parents were definitely there. And, uh, Anyway, the the war ended in a bit of a stalemate, and ever since then, the Indians and the Chinese have had a major dispute over the Doklam or Donglang Plateau. Doklam for the Indians and Donglang for the Chinese. Uh, The reason why this is a disputed territory is actually strategically very simple to understand. The thing to understand is that this is a mountainous region. Okay, Whoever controls the heights of the Doklam Plateau or Donglang, I mean, I don't care. I'm just going to stick with the Indian Convention because, number one, I don't particularly like the Chinese uh, for what they've done to the world. And, and number two, uh, it's easier to pronounce tukha. Um You may choose differently. That's up to you. I really don't have a dog in the fight. So, the reason why it's easier... Uh, the reason why that area is, under con- uh, is, is contested is because, essentially... Whoever controls the heights of the Dokkan Plateau uh, has a very easy route into the other person's country. So uh, China, if it controls the high ground, and it's always about control of the high ground, can enter India very easily. India, if it controls the high ground, can invade China very easily. Why would either country want to invade the other? Well, you know, power politics... um, there's not much to be gained for, for either side in invading, to be very honest. There's not much point in such a war. Uh, and I think, at this point at least, both the leadership on both sides is pragmatic enough to recognize this. And isn't particularly interested in getting involved in a relatively very stupid war. Um, <clears throat> the... Uh, the 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 aftermath of this war was more or less uh, a stalemate although it did result in the sweeping modernization of the indian military because it became very clear uh during that war that the indian military simply could not respond quickly enough to a much faster mobilized which is astonishing if you think about it uh and much more technologically advanced chinese military and it, remember we're talking 1962 here um, this is right. This is about ten, yeah, about ten years or so after the Chinese uh, overwhelmed the U.S. and the Allied forces uh, in South Korea, or in the Korean theater, simply by virtue of sheer numbers, and then were beaten back to uh, a stalemate, a very bloody stalemate, by virtue of American military technological supremacy. So, India and China have been locked in a stalemate pretty much ever since, uh, along a very, very high uh, series of mountain passes and valleys, which, strategically speaking, have some value, but not a whole lot. Um, Now, to get to the specifics of his question, what would a war between India and China be like? Uh, Extraordinarily savage. Because the thing to understand is the Chinese... Uh, have the world's largest standing military. They have over 2 million men under arms and can muster those men pretty easily and pretty quickly. And every summer, because uh, Chinese uh, male Chinese have to do compulsory military service, that number jumps enormously uh, while they are trained for, I think, 3 to 6 months. I forget exactly how long the period of military service is. India does not have mandatory conscription, as far as I'm aware. It does not have any form of mandatory conscription. Uh, The Indian military is a couple of million strong, but it's not as big as the Chinese military is. And um, in terms of quality of equipment and training, the Chinese are far inferior to the Americans. Pretty much everybody is inferior to the Americans. If you look at the level of uh, equipment and training that the average Chinese infantryman gets, it's like. A, a tiny fraction, it's like one tenth of what the american the average American grunt in the army never mind the marines the army gets okay uh that being said India has a serious problem with aging equipment uh much of its fighter fleet is still the old it's still based on the old mig twenty one uh you can find Indian military air bases all over the country where they have, uh, older Russian jets, you know, Su-27s, uh, MiG-29s, and a few others just lying around. They, they, they still have some of the very, very old Russian swing-wing fighter jets. And the Indian military high command does not have a particularly good grasp of integrated, what you might call systemology. Uh, neither the Indian nor Chinese militaries have this. But the Indian, uh, military basically just has sheer numbers on its side uh, against most other regional counterparts, but not against China. The Chinese, by contrast, have at this point basically full control over the seas if they want it. They have a a fully operational carrier. I believe they're looking to bring another two online. Uh, they have a quote-unquote fifth-generation stealth fighter. It's, it's bullshit. It's not a fifth-generation fighter. The J-20 Chengdu is not a fifth-generation fighter. It's a it's a bad knockoff of the F twenty-two, uh, because the Chinese basically stole all of that military technology from the U.S. And uh, it, incidentally, back when the F one seventeen Nighthawk was shot down in uh, over uh, basically over Serbia uh, in the Kosovo War in nineteen ninety nine, the the wreckage, some of the wreckage from that. Uh, Shootdown from that aircraft was stored at the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and it just so happens that if you know, if you if you go digging deep enough, you'll find that the American military under Clinton was authorized to fire off a cruise missile strike against that Chinese embassy. Now, the the U.S. at the time wrote it off as you know and protested; it was just a terrible accident. we we're, we're, we're dreadfully sorry. We never wanted uh, you guys to get hit. I'm so sorry that we attacked your embassy and so on and so forth. Uh, The U.S. and China came very close to outright war at the time because an attack on an embassy is an act of war. Why did they do it? Because the specific room that was hit by that cruise missile was the specific room in which the wreckage of that F-117 Nighthawk was kept. The U.S. was desperate not to lose its edge in stealth technology, and uh, it it attacked that specific room for that specific reason. I can uh, go find you the article on uns.com, and I'll link to it um, either on the blog or uh, in the SoundCloud podcast or both. So, uh, you know, that aside, the Chinese have a much tighter integration of their military technology and processes than India does, and I would rate China's military as vastly superior to India's, uh, qualitatively speaking, uh, and quantitatively as well the only advantage that India would have in such a conflict would be home field advantage. That's it. Um, and not much of one at that, to be very honest. Uh, so, that deals with that question. I, I think it would be a very bloody, very brutal war, and uh, both powers are armed with nukes, and India would not hesitate to use its nukes if its territorial sovereignty were threatened. I do believe that. The, the thing to understand about nuclear deterrence is that it is always the uh, the power with the qualitative and quantitative uh, inferiority complex that will use those nukes first. That was the case with the regime of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War. That is the case uh, today. The much ballyhooed uh, nuclear gap between the US and Russia, the Soviet Union, during the Cold War was always a myth. It, it has always been true that the United States had a massive qualitative edge over the Soviets. Although they had the quantitative edge, the US had the qualitative edge. And in all of the various war game scenarios that the Russians played out uh, during the Cold War, particularly around the time of the advent of the Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative program under St. Reagan Magnus of the Right, uh, the 40th President of the United States, the Soviets recognized. That the uh, advent of Star Wars would stop them from launching a uh, a retaliatory counterstrike, so essentially the the Soviets did a, a bunch of planning, and they realized very quickly that SDI could not stop a Soviet first strike against the US, but SDI could stop a retaliatory counterstrike. So if the U.S attacked first, they would be able to sit behind their SDI shield and the Soviets wouldn't be able to do a damn thing, well, or not much of anything. Now, as we know, SDI never really amounted to much of anything. Uh, the space defense program never really went anywhere. It was all a bunch of theory and politics, and uh, it, its primary purpose was to drive the Soviet Union into bankruptcy. Uh, but it also forced the Soviets to drop their idea of never striking first. They, they dropped that no first strike policy and uh, immediately began gearing up for a nuclear confrontation with the USA. The same is true of India right now. India knows that China is basically protected by a massive and very powerful series of overlapping systems uh, designed to sink carriers at sea and sink uh, any major surface fleet uh, and also that China has a major edge in tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. So India knows it cannot attack China on that front. Uh, second question: Could a small war between India and China have any benefits? Uh, no. Look, I am, I am no pacifist. I, I believe that when you're attack, when you are attacked by an enemy, you don't just fight back. You fight back until your enemy is stopped cold. And if that means killing your enemy, so be it. Uh, you cannot. The, the only way to stop someone from hurting you is to hurt him harder and worse than he's trying to hurt you uh so no i i, I am not a pacifist in any way shape or form. I do believe in curb stomping someone if he attacks you but I do not believe in attacking first that being said um war is 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 horrifying and uh, hellish and brutal, and it should be avoided at 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 the to the greatest degree possible. Sometimes war is, is inevitable, sometimes it's necessary, but even a small war uh, is is a very bad idea. Uh, small wars have, unfortunately, a habit of dragging on interminably, and that is probably what a small, low-intensity low border escalation between India and China would look like. It would essentially just become a meat grinder. All they'd be doing is sending small numbers of units into fight each other and while desperately struggling to keep the, the fighting contained and they would probably end up using uh, auxiliaries in the region, paramilitary auxiliaries in the form of uh, local tribesmen and local people uh, to feed into that meat grinder and it would just be carnage. It would be, it would be, it, it would be uh, unbridled savagery but on a localized scale. I don't believe that would yield any benefits for anybody. Um, the next question is about uh, the 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 surplus of men and women in both countries. Um, well, okay, I mean no disrespect to John C Nine One One here. I, I mean no, uh, I mean no insult or anything. But that is a remarkably callous and, frankly, honestly unchristian thing to say. Uh, because while while those two countries are messed up, um, that's a very cold and calculating way to look at fixing the gender divide. And, and frankly, it wouldn't work. If you look at China, they have something like 100 million more men than women. Maybe It may be as high as 130 million more right now. Both countries have a population of about 1.4 billion people. So, 100 to 130 million people, that's about a 10% imbalance, all right? Uh, That's not trivial at all. And it does lead to some serious problems uh, in in both countries. Both countries have a serious cultural issue with um, sex-selective abortion and um, uh, female infanticide. Both countries are... Astonishingly unenlightened when it comes to the role of women in their societies, and both countries are thoroughly unpleasant places to be for a lot of women. Both countries also have a major problem with declining birth rates, uh, believe it or not. Uh, in India, the divorce rate is supposedly 1%. It's actually 10 times higher than that, at least. The official reported statistic is 1%, but, you know... I, As much as I distrust Chinese statistics, Indian statistics are not that far behind in terms of being untrustworthy. Um, The elite, the educated elite in the cities uh, are divorcing at a much higher rate, particularly in cities like Bombay and Delhi. uh, I refuse to use the newfangled names for them. Um, Bombay, Madras, uh, Bangalore, and Delhi are kind of the the urban centers of, of India. And in these cities, um, women are much more likely to divorce because they they can establish their own careers much better. Uh, it is possible for them to build out their own lives without men. So that, that gender divide isn't going away anytime soon and <clears throat> really the cultural programming necessary to make it go away is not going to take root in either country. Uh, India is highly resistant to Christianity and has been since, basically since Thomas the Apostle landed there, uh, believe it or not, the British, the Christian British, supposedly nominally Christian British, did tremendous damage to the efforts to establish a Christian kingdom in India. And uh, th- that legacy continues to this day. India is highly averse to Christianity and will remain so for the foreseeable future. In fact, India is one of the absolute worst countries for a Christian to be, because they are... Uh, extremely hostile to Christ and to the, to the gospel, and extremely hostile to Christians in general. Uh, China, of course, persecutes Christians because we worship Jesus Christ and uh, God the Father of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and we are enjoined by Christ to obey the laws that are just and lawful, but to fight back against tyrants and oppressors uh, and disobey laws that are unjust. Uh, this is a threat to its power that the Communist Party will not withstand and will not tolerate. Uh, so, would it wake up the average Indian to the threats? Well, no, not really. Um, the average Indian is, as I've pointed out before, a, a severe, the average Indian man is a severe blue pill beater, and uh, will generally believe whatever the hell the government tells him, uh, you can see this with the nonsense going on with the current Kung Flu pandemic. The Indian government keeps saying, we need to keep the country shut down, we need to shut things down, we need to extend the lockdown. No, guys, you don't. It's bullshit. Every aspect of this is bullshit. And yet, the Indians keep swallowing this line and saying, yes, yes, of course, we must do that. No, they don't need to do this. They shouldn't have done this. <clears throat> They've continued to, to carry on with these insane lockdowns, but... There's really no good reason to to to, to keep carrying on. Um, I don't believe that the average Indian would wake up to the threat of uh, China particularly quickly. Um, by the way, just uh, tangentially, the Chinese are rightly regarded as a major threat to American and Western business because they have very predatory practices. They are openly nationalistic in their in their approach, which is something actually that the West could learn from. I mean, the West really needs to be more nationalistic uh, and to some degree at least more paternalistic in terms of its approach to business. Uh, The Chinese have that master to fine art. Uh, As much as I dislike the Chinese way of doing business, I will readily admit and admire the fact that um, Chinese business managers do what is good for China. And they believe fervently in China, coming first, the interests of the Chinese people, the Han Chinese people coming first. That is something that the West really needs to learn from and in a very big hurry. Uh, it needs to learn that the interests of white Western Europeans come first. Uh, and that is something I don't see happening anytime soon. So anyway, while the Chinese are considered to be the biggest threat to Western business, um, the the people that the Chinese... Businessmen fear the most are actually specific substrates of Indians, sub sub uh, groups of Indians. The Marwaris from Rajasthan, the Parsis who are actually Iranian by descent, and um, the Gujaratis, uh, basically people from the state of Gujarat. Uh, these are extremely sharp, extremely capable businessmen, and they they have no hesitation or qualms about playing favorites. Uh, if you look at the way the Indian businesses act in the u s the uh, the nature of those businesses revolves around kickbacks. If Indians bring in if if an Indian gets into a position uh, as a manager, he will typically try to bring in more Indians. Now, I was never in that position um, and i on the during the few times that I had opportunities to bring in other people. Uh, I didn't care whether someone was from India or China or wherever. I just cared whether or not he was right for the job. And I got overruled several times by Indian or Chinese superiors who were like, no, I want an Indian guy or I want a Chinese guy. I was like, that's that's stupid. If I get a white guy into my team, I'm perfectly happy to have a white guy in my team. In fact, in many cases, I'd rather have a white guy in my team because they just work better. Um, But that was me. Uh, A lot of Indian managers will happily except bribes and kickbacks. And in fact, that's expected. They will, they will sit there in the office and they will take in uh, 10% of uh, an Indian junior guy's salary. That's like expected in, in the form of kickbacks and, and, and uh, glad-handing. And the Chinese are the same way. Uh, there's, there's no real distinction between them. They, they play by kind of the same set of rules, uh, which look extraordinarily dirty to Westerners. They look extraordinarily dirty to me, because uh, I lived my whole life in the West, pretty much, more or less. And uh, it's ugly. It's an ugly and inefficient way of doing business, but it does work. And in some ways, it undercuts Western ways of doing business. The only people the Chinese think can do it better than them are Indians. So, you know, make of that what you will. Uh, now, about the part uh, with respect to World War II with the Russians. Uh, yes, the country was trashed. And a lot of families lost loved ones. Millions died. Uh, that's, that's, uh, the understatement of the year, honestly. Millions died is like, that's, that's like saying water is wet. The Russians lost over 20 million people in World War II, including 9 million soldiers at least, uh, in the hell of Leningrad, the siege of Leningrad, 900 days long, uh, people had to resort to cannibalism, uh, just to survive. Uh, Stalingrad, what we now call Volgograd uh, today, Leningrad was uh, St Petersburg. Uh the Russian army was not far from Moscow. I mean sorry, the the German army was not that far from Moscow at one point before they were forced to retreat. Uh 20 million people was as I recall roughly a quarter of the population at the time. Now, that's 20 million people on top of the oh no, no it was it was less than a quarter of the population. Uh because, you know, Russia Russia suffered something like Forty to sixty million dead under Stalin uh, throughout, you know, his his uh, his reign of terror. So uh, the the total number of Russian war dead was enormous. I mean, Russians regard Western insistence on World War II as being their victory as just ludicrous, and they're right. They're absolutely right to say that the West did not win World War II. It didn't. Okay, everything you know about World War II pretty much is wrong. Um, and I don't have the time to go into it in this podcast, but basically, if you look at the actual details of World War II, Hitler did not want to go to war with Britain. He was provoked into it by Churchill. Churchill himself was not the great leader, not quite, that we are led to believe. He was, in fact, a self-aggrandizing self bully who provoked war with, Britain, uh, with with Germany because he wanted to be seen as a great leader, and he wanted to cover up ...for his own incompetence and his own mistakes in World War I. Uh, He wanted to burnish his legacy because Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, was directly responsible for the disaster of Gallipoli. Uh, Now, if you look at the Eastern Front, the Russians were the reason why the Wehrmacht was bled dry in Stalingrad and Kursk and other engagements along the Eastern Front. The Russians paid for every single mile that the Germans took in blood in the blood of nearly a quarter of their families. Uh, every, pretty much every single family in Russia was affected by the deaths in World War II. Not not one family, so the story goes, in Western Russia at least was unaffected. Families in uh, Eastern Russia, you know, towards uh, Kamchatka, and uh, Central Russia in Siberia, maybe not so much. But there is no doubt that families across the country were badly affected by the war. Uh, what did it do to Russian psychology? It, it, it made the idea of war unthinkable. Uh, the Russian people still have a, an abiding horror of war that Westerners don't understand. Westerners think that the Russians were willing to provoke another war with the West in, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and they thought that the Cold War was going to turn hot because of Russian interference. Here's the thing. The Russian leadership may have been like that, because dictators always tend to overestimate their own uh, grip on power and their own uh, the willingness of their own people to fight, because they tend to be insulated by yes men. But the actual Russian people were heartily sick of war. They didn't want it. They they were the 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 sheer trauma of that war runs deep to a degree that you have to actually speak to Russians to understand how bad it is and I know because you know I'm involved with a Russian girl i I speak with her on a, on a regular basis I know what she goes through and um, she's she she talks about it all the time like whenever we bring up the conversation uh, recently on on victory day uh, may may 9th uh, victory day for the Russians is one day after victory day, VE day for Europeans. And we were talking about this. We were talking about what it's like in Russia. And she said, uh, we Russians don't want war. We we never want to go to war again because of what happened in the Great Patriotic War. That's what they call it, the Great Patriotic War. So it that horror changed Russia completely. Uh, it did result in a massive gender imbalance the other way. Um... It persists to this day. There are roughly nine, well, I mean, the numbers may have changed by now, but in a country of 147 million, there are roughly 9 million more women than men. So women really have to make efforts to look good and stand out um, among Russians. Uh, So that is why, you know, you 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 tend to see, like, guys, Russian men with beer guts and and, and dressed in sandals walking along the streets of Moscow or St. Petersburg in, in summertime with like dime pieces on their arms i've seen it okay i've I've been to st petersburg in summer i was there in june 2018 uh when the world cup was underway i like i was doing the full linda Blair thing in the exorcist man i mean i my head was spinning around i was like holy whoa geez look at all these gorgeous women um and i do that every time i go to moscow too even in winter i mean i've been to moscow in winter and it's just like Holy crap, there's so many, not not, not, just not, not like models necessarily, but just well-put-together, beautiful women. It does have an impact. Um, the, uh, the, the war definitely changed their psychology as well, of course. The, the Russians do not subscribe to some of the more suicidally stupid aspects of, of um, European thinking. They certainly don't sign up to mass immigration. However, there is an important caveat to this. If you go to Moscow, uh, if you go to any of the western big cities in Russia, especially Moscow, you'll find that there is a very large population of migrant workers uh, from the what they call the uh, Kafkas Republics. The Russians call it Kafkas. Uh, basically, the Ukstan countries that border Russians um, southwest and south. So you'll find lots and lots and lots of Azerbaijanis uh, Dagestani,s Turkmenistani,s some some of them, uh, Kyrgyzstanis, um uh, uh, Uzbekistanis, but predominantly Azerbaijanis, uh, in in that area in, in in Moscow, working the menial jobs, you know, street cleaners, uh, sweepers, uh, basically wait staff at restaurants, uh, you know. Oh, working in the metro working as uh, as as cleaners now the russians have a very different approach to this than let's say illegal immigration in mexico uh from mexico to the us the russians make it very clear that you can apply for a 6 month guest worker visa to russia in any of these uh former soviet republics and you can come over to russia and you can work in russia no problems but after 6 months you have to go home you're not allowed to stay and pick up Russian citizenship. The Russians do not have blanket amnesty programs the way that America does or the way that uh, Canada does. Uh, I mean, in terms of bringing in skilled migrant labor. That that doesn't happen. Um, European migration programs do not exist in Russia. The idea of bringing in lots of refugees is anathema to them. They will bring in people that they think can contribute. Like, they, uh, the Russians agreed to bring in 15,000 Uh, South African Boers, who are white South Africans, descendants of the original English and Dutch colonists of South Africa, uh, who are very talented and skilled farmers, to work Russian farmland. That's the kind of people that they want. People who are willing to work, people who are willing to learn Russian, willing to acculturate, willing to become part of Russia. They're not interested in bringing in the dregs and refuse of the entire dirt world. So that's the primary difference. Um, Psychologically speaking, what would happen to India and China in the event of a major war? Well, nothing good. Uh, The Indians would not change their psychology much. I don't believe that such a war would be large enough to cause uh, the kind of gender rebalancing that uh, John C. is referring to. Um, And I don't believe that it uh, it it would fundamentally change their psychology unless the war went nuclear. In which case, all bets are off. Uh, if it goes nuclear, then you can pretty much bet that the uh, that most of Asia will be a write-off. Um, you can pretty much bet that South Asia will be destroyed. Uh, much of Han Chinese territory will be destroyed, and uh, you know, pray to God that never happens, because that would be an absolutely horrifying, horrific, uh, you know, outcome. Uh, Finally, um, you've commented in the past on Indian men and women, Indian military ranks, and the caste system. Well, look, uh, India suffered much worse than a war with China could make it suffer. Think about it. Under Mughal occupation, or actually under Islamic occupation of India, the total number of people killed is estimated, I'm talking estimated, we don't even know what the real number is, at 80 million. Okay, 80 million. That's under, what, 500 or so years of Islamic occupation of India. That is vastly more than the entire death toll of World War II. That, admittedly, it's spread out over 500 odd years, but that is the kind of number we're talking about. The Muslims slaughtered so many of India's people that, you know, uh, entire villages were wiped out, entire cities were razed to the ground, and piles of skulls were raised uh, uh, among the ruins. Uh, the 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 advent, the reason why the Sikh religion exists in the first place, is because of Islamic invasion of India. Now, that is the degree of shock that the Indian culture has absorbed and it still hasn't changed. Okay? The caste system still exists. The caste system is still a fundamental part of Hindu society. Muslims are outnumbered in India by about 4 to 1. So and even then India still persists in having this massive drag upon its productivity, its its uh, its ability to innovate, its social progress, everything. I mean, This caste system problem is fundamental. It's part of what India is. You can't get rid of it. The only way to get rid of it is literally to bomb Hinduism out of existence. And that is beyond the pale. I I mean, I won't even talk to somebody who contemplates doing that because that is so anti-human and so disgusting that I I can't even begin to contemplate um, the idea. It's just horrifying. And I don't believe anyone reasonable, John C. Nine One One included, is advocating that. Nobody is saying that should happen. Uh, that's the only way to fundamentally reform Indian society is to is to basically wipe out Hinduism and start over at at the roots. And it's 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 not going to happen, and nobody's calling for that. And the idea itself is is just anathema. So I don't believe that a war would uh, result in anything of the sort. And I don't believe that a war. Should ever happen for that reason. Um, so, would uh, would Chinese society change as a result of this? Eh, no. Um, both India and China take pride in the fact that their cultures are like five thousand years old, roughly speaking. Uh, the Chinese would claim that theirs is older. Uh, Indians might dispute that, but uh, you know the caste system has definitely been around for about fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand years. Um, the Chinese way of life as we know it today has definitely been around for about 2000 odd years. Uh, China as a united political entity has existed since the time of Qin Shi Huangdi, the emperor, the first emperor of the, uh, Qin dynasty who built the, uh, Qin dynasty, I think. Yeah. Who built the great wall, um, and he is the reason why China is what it is today. I mean, China has, owes its systems of weights and measures, its language, its alphabet, <clears throat> its Great Wall, uh, to him. Its system of governance, to him. So, that's how long dated a culture we're talking. By contrast, most Western nations, as we understand them today, have really only existed for... uh 600 years, uh, maybe a thousand, thereabouts, England, yeah, 1,200, 1,500 years, so the United Kingdom has not existed as a united nation for more than uh, 350, 400 years, something like that, so um, the idea that you're going to change China radically is silly, not going to happen, uh not without a severe existential threat to the Chinese or to the Indians. It's not going to happen, okay? Um, and I don't believe that a small-scale war will correct these imbalances, nor should it, and we should not look to war as a corrective measure. Uh, down that road lies madness. Um, I do believe that India and China will eventually come to blows because um, both are rising powers, the Indians have their own very kind of recalcitrant, stubborn way of doing things. The Chinese look at India as being in the way of what they want to get done. And uh, I don't believe that uh, they'll be able to avoid some sort of conflict at some point. And it's going to be pretty miserable when it happens. Uh, let's just all hope and pray it never does. So... Anyway, um, this has gone on for quite a while. Uh, I do hope you have found it informative. I hope I have answered all of uh, John C.'s questions. And uh, if you would like uh, me to follow up on any of these points, just uh, leave a comment either here on SoundCloud or go over to my blog and I will talk to you uh, for uh, or on Sunday's podcast, which uh, I hope to address some issues of faith and spirituality. And uh, I will see you then. This is Didact, and this has been Domain Query, Cynasian War.